This is Ballots and Beyond, a deeper dive into Nigeria's elections with Timisholeya and Toby Lawson. Good day, everyone. This is Ballots and Beyond. It's an initiative of Ideas on Trap, the excellent podcast that looks at development ideas generally. Balance and Beyond is between myself, Timmy Shiller, and Toby Lawson. What we are attempting is a limited engagement podcast that looks at critical issues that we see in advance of the Nigerian presidential and gubernatorial elections, but primarily presidential elections, the national elections that are happening later this month of February 2023. So far, we've discussed the demonetization crisis, the cash crunch, that has gone on in Nigeria with Andrew Nevin, Dr. Andrew Nevin from PwC. We've discussed the fiscal position of Nigeria and touched on the question of taxes. We're non-partisan, so we really are just trying to provide a forum to discuss some of these ideas that we think might be useful for Nigeria to think about in the run-up to elections. Today, we have Mr. Fola Fagule, who has very kindly agreed to come and discuss with us. Thank you, guys. It's uh, great to be here. Um, so if one thinks about the assets and infrastructure, gap and waste in Nigeria, what are some rational and reasonable ways forward? And what are some of the most critical things that you hope, you hope that whoever is going to win the presidential election in roughly two weeks is thinking about and has thought about as they embarked upon campaigning for the job, then winning it, and then hopefully governing the country in a rational and reasonable fashion. The subtitle I had for this was like, why elephant projects in Nigeria's infrastructure deficit and the dead capital. So it's like trains, power plants, refineries, steel plants, gas infrastructure. Azura, which I mentioned only because it's in the news, Presently, the World Bank has had to rush to Nigeria to explain to Nigeria the problems that they will have if they default on the sovereign guarantees that back that power plant. I have the second Niger Bridge. I have the AKK pipeline slash OB3. And I have the train line sponsored by the federal government. So the coastal one, um, Calabar to Lagos and the train to Niger that has been mooted that would go from Kano to Maradi and cost $1.9 billion. I think what I will add to that list is the refineries. I was listening to the president of the Nigerian Labor Congress a couple of days ago on the news, and, you know, like, it, it's this perennial thing, like, we won't bother with fuel subsidies if we have working refineries, if the government-owned refineries are working. And, you know, there's always this revitalization plan of the refineries that we do every four to five years. That pops a lot of money, but we don't refine anything. So I think maybe Fola should, like, give us the background so that our refineries, our local refineries, really the sort of magic bullet to well scarcity? Um, no, they're not, right? And I say this as somebody who is, you know, actively involved in multiple projects designed to increase production capacity of refined petroleum products in Nigeria, you know, both small-scale projects, modular refineries, and large-scale projects, including, you know, the largest of them all, Bangladesh Refinery, in which we are a financier and I've also worked as an advisor to multiple parties in relation to ensuring that that project gets built and online. Now, having said all of that, you know, domestic refining capacity is important, is extremely important. It's a national security imperative. You see it with what has happened with the world originally during the COVID pandemic and then subsequently with the war between Russia and Ukraine you absolutely do need domestic refining capacity, if for nothing else, purely from a national fuel supply security perspective. All of that being said, the magic bullet, if there was one, is not so much having refining capacity. 
it is having a functional market by which fuel products are purchased, consumed, paid for in the country. It's really more about having a normal functioning market. And this is a common theme across all of the projects that you mentioned. All of the economic infrastructure that has been built or is mooted to be built in the future of Nigeria. Key thing is not about the projects themselves. It's about having a framework, normal functioning market framework, in which these projects can be built and sustainably operated long into the future. And I'll give you a simple example of that. Government owning a refinery does not mean that crude oil will not have to be paid for, right? One way or another, it will still have to be paid for. Government owning a refinery doesn't mean the other inputs that are required into producing refined petroleum products will not need to be paid for. The capital for constructing the refinery and for keeping it operational will need to be paid for. So essentially, you have to have a market framework by which you recover the capital that goes into building this project on a sustainable basis so that these projects can work and can be beneficial to all of the people who buy from them. And I'm happy to have that conversation in the context of any number of projects and show you how, certainly from my perspective, and when we advise clients, particularly state enterprises, the thinking that we try to adopt is one that says, you know, forget about the project for a second and let's talk about the framework under which this project is going to exist on a sustainable basis. If the framework is right, the projects will come, whether it's roads, bridges, power plants, refineries, airports, seaports, you name it. Projects will be built when the economic framework for them is appropriate. My follow-up to that, and apologies if this is a bit reductive because we sort of have a diverse audience in mind. So when you say a functional market, what exactly do you mean? Because I'll give you one example. One of the presidential candidates, I'm not going to mention him, consistently talked about how you can get the crude in Naira because we don't need to argue so much or source effects so much. If you get the crude domestically and then you refine domestically and then you sell domestically. And what jumps out of me, and Andrew Ali was sort of making the same point on Twitter yesterday, have opportunity if you include a local refinery, you source capital in dollars. Why would you want to sell? So, so, Toby, first of all, that is just a completely overly simplistic picture that has been painted by whoever the candidate was that said that. I don't know who it is, but I'm happy to lampoon it, whoever said it, because it is overly simplistic and it does not reflect any kind of understanding of how global markets work or how large industrial projects work. So it is not enough to say because a project is in Nigeria, it does not need to conform with international standards as far as its operations is concerned. Because refined petroleum is a globally traded commodity. You know, it's the same thing that is being produced in, in Europe, in Latin America, in, in the Caribbean, in Rotterdam, where a lot of our fuel comes from in India, in China, in the United States, it's the same product. It's a seabound product that's been traded across multiple markets globally. It's a massive industrial enterprise. And so you don't exist in a vacuum in Nigeria with your refinery. And it's extremely important that people who are working on public policy bear this in mind. So it's not enough to say, well, you're simply going to build a refinery by the way which you're going to have to import substantially all of the product required to build a refinery, all of the inputs. So your inputs are hard currency. It is extremely important that you think about the hard currency implications of what you're doing. You know, whether or not the product is actually being sold for Naira or for dollars or whatever it's being sold for. In any event, if we now come to practical terms in Nigeria, it's very unlikely that you will find the output from refineries being sold in local currency. Extremely unlikely for the simple reason that it's not going to be a sustainable basis for doing business. The crude oil has to be paid for in hard currency. And if you are only earning Naira for your product, how do you 
buy crude oil on a sustainable basis. And this goes to what I said about a sustainable market framework for doing things. Otherwise, you will get into problems again with the value chain. The reasons for scarcity today are problems in the value chain as a result of a market that is not properly functioning. But to play devil's advocate, and again, this is not what I believe, but to play devil's advocate, you know, these NNPC, JVs and production sharing contracts, right? And the oil is being produced that ostensibly belongs to at least some of the apparatus of the Nigerian state. Could one not make an argument that that oil, yes, the capital cost of the refinery, you know, it's going to be made by Bechtel, who we have to pay in dollars, but that that oil could be paid for in Naira, considering the fact that it is, quote-unquote, Nigeria's sovereign product. Just our share. You know, so no, I mean, it goes back to the original point that I, I made, which is that you have to think about how sustainable is this as a market framework. And it's not sustainable as a market framework for you to say crude oil, which is the number one export earner for your country, is going to be traded in local currency, you know, Hard currency is extremely scarce. You need it. And so you have to figure out, how do I still have a competitive refinery, even though I have to buy crude in dollars, just like everybody else in the world? There's nowhere else in the world where they're not buying the crude in dollars. That just the fact that they have crude does not mean that all of a sudden it's no longer a dollar-traded commodity. You know, if you go to Saudi Arabia and look at what's happening with Saudi Aramco and their refining capacity there. If you go to look at the big refineries in India, if you go and look in Latin America, if you look, the United States produces much more crude oil than Nigeria, right? Well, you can say that the dollar is their currency, but you know, go to Singapore, go to any other market globally. This is the way business is done. It's not going to be different for us. And we have to understand this when we conceptualize projects and ideas and policies, because the minute you think that there's some exception for you, you are going to create inefficiency, which is where corruption lives. It is in these nooks and crannies of inefficiency is where corrupt systems really thrive and people will find ways to game the system and to make a profit out of it. So I, I do think, and certainly when I give advice to clients and people that we work with, it's very, very important to think about the big picture of what you're trying to do if you really want to build a sustainable system as opposed to you know, making arguments that are simplistic and suggest that there's a way you can get away without doing things the way they need to be done. My next question would be then, to stay on refineries whilst trying to transition to this question of dead capital, what then does that mean for the future of three slash four refineries that are currently extant within Nigeria? the market framework and the market realities that you said, because, you know, there's always this idea, which is that there's this pool of capital in projects such as Ajaukata, in projects such as the, you know, Potakot refineries, the Kaduna refinery, you know, they're just billions of dollars of value sitting there, not doing much, and that there's unrealized value for the average Nigerians. It's whether we decide to exploit them by operating them efficiently or by selling them. What's the prospect for that, in your opinion? So I don't think that that is where the dead capital is in built projects that are not functional. So I would disagree with that uh, concept, that there is dead capital sitting there. There is dead capital sitting in something like land, for example, as you and I have talked about this before. I'm sure you'd agree with me that in reforming the Land Use Act and making land a much more fungible and marketable security, making it easier to transfer, making title to land a much more liquid instrument. There is an enormous amount of dead capital sitting in that, which can be easily seen by anybody, including myself, you know, in terms of land and property that I own, it would be so much easier, better, you know, access to mortgages, etc., etc., if the title are more easily transacted. But if we go back to your question about debt capital sitting in infrastructure. Honestly, I'll use a practical example, which I like to do in describing this. Um, I was recently working with folks who were looking to purchase or secure a concession for a major hydro dam in Nigeria, which is in the process of being completed. So this is a massive hydro dam that has already been built by the government of Nigeria, and it's in the process of now being concessioned by the Bureau of Public Enterprises. And some of my clients are looking at this, interested to, to participate. 
And as I said to the folks who came to me on this, you know, the government's objective on this project has to be not so much how do we maximize the capital that we get out of selling or concessioning or whatever you want to call it, this impressive hydro dam that it has built, you know, significant generation capacity, potentially transformational in terms of developmental impact. Your objective must not be if you're really doing things properly to maximize how much you can sell this asset for. It has to be how can this asset help bring down the levelized cost of energy consumption in Nigeria? Because the developmental objective that we are here for, or that we should be here for, is about bringing energy costs down and making energy availability higher and bringing the levelized cost of energy in Nigeria down so that we can be more competitive from a national and a regional and an international perspective. Our manufacturers can be more competitive, our people can get electricity cheaper and can be more productive as a result. So if you go into a transaction like that with the idea that you're trying to maximize quote-unquote debt capital and you're going to sell the asset to the highest bidder, you actually may achieve an impact that is contrary to what you ought to be achieving, which is thinking about how do I create a transaction structure that incentivizes whoever this concessionaire is to work hard, extremely hard, at reducing the cost of this energy over a long-term period? And how do I insert into whatever agreement I have with them conditions and incentives for them to bring down significantly the cost of generation at this plant over the life of the concession. And that's what the focus should be on. So now apply that same thinking to any government asset that you can think of. Again, our objective cannot be how do we maximize the capital sitting in this rail line that we've built from Kaduna to Abuja, or this rail line that we've built from Lagos to Ibadan, or this steel plant that we built that never worked up in Ajalkuta or Auscon, which worked in Ikotabasi for three years and then never worked again uh, since then. The objective cannot be, you know, how do I maximize how much I sell this for in order to deal with my short-term fiscal challenges? Uh, short-term fiscal challenges have to be dealt with with real long-term solutions as far as the cost of governance is concerned. Our objective has to be how do we get these assets into the hands of the parties with the right industrial expertise the right access to capital and the right commercial incentives to make them work in terms of the industrial development goals of Nigeria. Now, I certainly haven't heard any of the candidates talk in this manner. And quite frankly, I haven't heard many Nigerians even understand the problem in this manner. But this is how it has to be understood if you're going to achieve the right developmental impact. That's a beautiful distinction, if I can say so. So which will take me back to the market structure argument. And I really want you to like break it down for the average voter. You know, people are going to the polls and they are very strongly emotional about these things. First of all, like Nigerians have this notion that if you have an abundant supply of or deposits, let me call it that, of natural resources, then why the hell should I be paying X amount for petrol if we are so crude oil abundant, you know, goes the argument. So what market structure, like if you are advising the next president, what market structure would properly incentivize the developmental objectives? Yeah, I agree. You're trying to bring down the energy costs. And I think one of the things that happened with us is that our government easily go to subsidizing as a way to bring down that cost and not markets, you know. So that's why I'm asking. Voila. So subsidies are a blunt instrument which should be very selectively utilized and when they are utilized, should be utilized with the idea of making their impact felt at the place where it is most absolutely required. And I have no issues with subsidies as a concept, by the way, but they have to be very cleverly deployed or else you end up just creating a boon for people who want to essentially steal money. So let's leave the matter of subsidies aside for a second. I mean, you know, subsidies as they're currently being operated in the petroleum markets in Nigeria are totally useless and inefficient. So let's just 
put that aside for a second. I'm happy to tell you why. The obvious reason why is that if you go outside now, there's no fuel, right? That's a clear example of the subsidy regime that has failed entirely because the product is unavailable. And yeah. it's unavailable very regularly. I mean, in Abuja, there's been fuel scarcity. People in Lagos are complaining about fuel scarcity since uh, September. There was fuel scarcity for the whole of last year in Abuja. Every day for the whole of last year. And in many other parts of the country. Anyway, I digress. To answer your question specifically, what is the appropriate economic policy direction that the government would take that wants to ensure that fuel is, first of all, available? That's the first thing, right? We want it to be available. We want it to be abundantly available at all times. And we want it to be cheap, or as cheap as we can get it to be. These are the policy objectives that we have for um, refined petroleum in Nigeria. The answer to that has to be, if you just think about it from a pure economics 101 perspective, how do you get a product to have huge supply and also to be cheap? Well, you have to incentivize the supply of that product from everywhere possible that it can possibly emanate from. You want domestic refineries working. You want international traders selling into this market. You want your petroleum supply and distribution infrastructure to be top-notch, all the way from getting it in at the ports, you know, putting it into pipelines that carry it all over the country, to supply dumps, tank farms, everything that you need in order to have an efficient market. That's what you want, right? I think everyone who understands basic economics and, and the way industries work will understand that this is what you need if you're going to get something abundantly available and cheap. Now, all those things cost money, all those things that I've just described. Supply infrastructure costs money. Pipelines cost money. The product itself costs money. And the government doesn't have enough money to do all of this. So absolutely, you need investment, right? I think anybody listening will agree up to this point, right? We need capacity in order to increase supply and ultimately make something cheaper. So we need a lot of investment. And we also know that the government by itself doesn't have the capital to do this, the government is essentially broke as we speak. So that capital has to come from somewhere else. And that somewhere else is private markets, domestic and international. And how do you incentivize capital to come into um, a, a sector? I mean, it's not just liberalization, but liberalization is a big part of it. So price liberalization is extremely important in order to incentivize you know, the capital coming in. Prices at the pump need to be governed by a very liberal regime that puts power in the hands of the sellers in relationship to the consumers to determine the price. They can't be arbitrarily determined or else the investment will not come. But it's not enough to just say simply liberalize the price and let it go to wherever it will go. I mean, liberalize within reason and put in regulatory structures which exist already, but fine-tune them to ensure that price gouging does not happen and that there's some kind of competitive tension that is setting prices across the country. But an observer would say, well, you do all of that, but then you know the product is more expensive. So yes, you do want to make it cheaper for certain classes of users. For a user like me, I think that it is bad government policy to be making petroleum products cheaper for me. And there are many people in this category. So we need to figure out where are those categories. By the way, for you and uh, Timmy as well, I would put you in the same category. Because if you guys just, you know, hop across to Accra tonight, I assure you that you will pay the full price of petrol there. If you just hop across, walk across to Douala, you will pay the full price of petrol there. So there's really no basis for you benefiting or me benefiting from a fuel subsidy in Nigeria. And so we need to design a subsidy regime that removes those of us who are not very vulnerable from benefiting from this and targets it at the most vulnerable people that we, we do want to benefit from it. And we have to calculate how much that subsidy is, how much can we afford on an annual basis. And we have to properly take it through parliament, get approvals for it and let it be extremely transparent how much we're spending, who are we spending it on and what's the mechanism by which they're getting their hands on that money. And so there you have it, right? You've at once created a market framework that attracts investment, and then you've also put a subsidy in place for the most vulnerable of your population. It doesn't end there, right? There are other things that you need to do to incentivize the investment inflows that you want. And there are many tools and levers at the disposal of government to incentivize investment, everything from pioneer status, tax breaks, 
ease of doing business, you know, assistance on so many levels that businesses require in order to operate. So you do all of that, all that microeconomic stuff, along with the macroeconomic stuff that is necessary to, you know, bringing inflation down, you know, working hard on monetary policy, all of the things that are necessary to make the economy more conducive for investment. And you will achieve the outcome if you do this. But it's painstaking hard work and there's no silver bullet. That's just the reality. And that would be my advice if I, if I was asked. Let's talk about power for a bit. I read one of your pieces in Business Day, I think a couple of years ago, 2020, I'm not sure. So like you had one of the most balanced perspective, and I read the report that informed that particular essay also. One of the most balanced views on power, because I think there's a bit of, this is my opinion, by the way, there's a bit of bias towards markets. It's good. So, but we've sort of reduced this whole power thing to the fact that Nigerians do not want to pay market price. And that's like the great barrier in having a functional electricity market. And in your report and even your essay, you cited several operational inefficiencies, even from the power companies. So I just want to know what's like, since you did that report, what has changed? What hasn't? What's the way going forward regarding power? Because it's also a huge issue. And all the major leading candidates are making huge promises, you know x gigawatts of electricity in four years so like what should really voters be looking for in terms of credible promises regarding power thanks uh toby that's a excellent question i think i've read all of the manifestos of the candidates i honestly do not see one that truly understands the electricity problem in nigeria in the context of creating a sustainable market within which electricity can be produced, transmitted, distributed, sold, consumed, and paid for. And as I might have said in that article, but I've said in other places where I've spoken about this, electricity is an organizational problem. There's no scientific revolution about it, right? The same electricity as was figured out by you know Thomas Edison and the folks who illuminated the first building in Manhattan whenever they did it 100 plus years ago, it's the same technology. It hasn't changed much. The various means by which electricity is produced have changed. New innovations have happened. Uh, and, and even then, they're not terribly original innovations. Like wind energy is as old as the ages. Solar energy is not you know particularly revolutionary. Nuclear, perhaps, which came during the Second World War and, and since then is absolutely revolutionary with Einstein's uh, findings. But Again, it produces electricity, which is the same commodity that has always been since human beings figured it out. So there is no technological challenge with having electricity in Nigeria. It is an organizational challenge. And the solution to it is that we have to be better organized. And that's the reality, right? So there's no one silver bullet. Again, it's not to say, oh, if we simply just increase the price, problem will go away. Well, increasing the price is not a solution to an organizational problem. Just like simply privatizing the industry is not by itself a solution to an organizational problem. It may be part of the solution, and I was a big supporter of privatization, a big advocate for privatization, and supported quite a few transactions successfully in the privatization. And there have been a lot of good success stories out of the privatization. It's not all doom and gloom. And okay, I'm happy to... A, lo a lot, like the hydroelectric... Not just, not just yeah. the hydros. I mean, if you look at the performance of some of the distribution companies, Certainly the ones in the Lagos and environs, if you look at the Keja Electricity Distribution Company, if you look at Eco Electricity Distribution Company, I'll talk about the Keja because I like them very much and they're actually a client of mine. I mean, that's a serious, major change management story that has happened there. That, that is one of the most important change management stories that has happened in this country in the last 20 years, I would say, in terms of how they took over that utility they invested significant amounts of capital, expertise, knowledge, people to get it operating at a level that is significantly better than, than whatever it was under government ownership in terms of introducing technology, introducing new ways of doing business, introducing transparency into the system. 
So you wouldn't have gotten that without privatization. And there are others, including the hydros as well. So there have been success stories in privatization, but privatization is not a silver bullet. Back to my point, it's about organization. And what do I mean by organization? It's about, as you were saying, uh, Toby, figuring out what are all of the inefficiencies and all of the problems that are preventing us from having stable electricity supply. It's everything across the value chain from gas supply to power plants, gas pricing itself to gas pipelines, you know, upstream gas projects. We have a potential crisis in terms of not enough upstream gas projects happening, particularly upstream gas projects that are focused on the domestic market. In terms of the export market, we have a big crisis there, just not enough upstream projects happening to feed our export potential going into the next you know, 20 years. But we have an even worse problem in terms of domestic gas supply. We do not have a proper renewable energy plan for the country. We do not have a plan that transforms the potential of northern and middle belt Nigeria into a major producer of wind and solar energy. We do not have a plan that is going to ensure that all of the hydro potential of Nigeria is fully tapped. So these are the places where government intervention is needed, not in simply decreeing that we're going to have X number of megawatts in four years and government is simply going to award projects to do that. I mean, we tried that before in the past. And we saw how that worked out. So government's role has to be in figuring out those areas where only it can intervene in helping to reduce inefficiency. I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurial energy, like what Timmy is doing and many other developers are doing, that is focused on electricity generation, electricity supply, electricity transmission, distribution in the country. So the entrepreneurial energy is there. A lot of expertise is there. A lot of these developers have very good expertise. They have access to capital in many cases. So the government's role has to be, how do we remove all the bottlenecks to help all of these projects come on stream, as opposed to any kind of centralized idea around government procuring energy, whether it is by building new plants or awarding new IPPs or what have you. Those could be part of the solution, but they're not by themselves a solution. Final point to make on this is regulation is extremely important, right? Everywhere in the world, electricity markets are highly regulated markets. And so the quality of the regulatory infrastructure is almost as important, maybe even more important than the quality of the physical infrastructure. So the people that are sitting in the regulator, their knowledge of the market, of the industry, and their incentivization structures Whatever it is that is needed to get them to focus like a laser on how do we reduce inefficiency? How do we make it easier for projects to get to financial close? How do we clamp down on developers and asset owners and operators that are doing the wrong things? How do we encourage those that are doing the right things and get more of these projects out? So if we do that, if the government takes a role on sort of the planning and organization, that sort of helicopter view role in clearing out bottlenecks and removing obstacles, and government empowers a very strong and competent regulator. And we as a private sector continue to do a lot of what we've done in terms of bringing in capital for these projects. I think you see a lot of success. Final point I should make is that you can't have cheap electricity if you have high inflation. Those two things don't go together. Everything I said will be killed if you do not control inflation in the country, because Electricity simply cannot tolerate the kinds of price increases that inflation would warrant in a country like Nigeria. So if you think about all the African markets that have relatively successful electricity supply industries, you will notice that they have one thing in common. It is that inflation is under control in those places. What they have in common is the CFA. Well, that's the source of control on inflation. It's not only the CFA market. You know, Kenya doesn't have an electricity problem. Kenya doesn't have an inflation problem. I mean, South Africa now has a significant, a massive electricity problem, which just goes to the point that electricity is about organization. Yeah, you I was know, about to say, like, if, if we go back to your essential point, sorry, when you did mm-hmm. describe electricity as an organizational problem, right? Mm-hmm. But if we talk about the government having a planning and organization role, a new government in the structure of the electricity market in Nigeria, 
but we also talk about them kind of staying out of it to a certain extent, but having a very strong and competent regulator without using the price mechanism in order to drive the development of the market and thus the, the plugging of gaps. Like, you know how it is. For me, I'm th- those four things, I'm having trouble squaring the circle. No, but, um, but I didn't say that. I didn't say that price should not be used as an incentive. Actually, I said the opposite, which is that price has to be set as much as possible by actions of buyers and sellers and decisions that they make between themselves. And the regulator has to make that happen. And similar to fuel, if you want to introduce a subsidy, you introduce a targeted subsidy that addresses the folks that you want it to address. I'm always a liberal as far as price setting is concerned. Markets, as much as possible, should set prices. My point is that it's not a silver bullet. And again, as I was saying, South Africa is a good example of that, right? You know, because you can make the argument that South Africans can't afford electricity. That's a major industrialized market, one of the major global mining distributions with huge amounts of uh, industrial exports coming out of there. So clearly, the affordability is there. And yet they have a crisis because they failed to organize themselves over the long term. Um, and those organizational deficits have come back to bite them in the face uh, right now. And in many ways, it's the exact same situation in Nigeria. Nigeria can afford the electricity that it needs, can probably afford way more than it needs in order to spur economic growth and new horizons in terms of economic development. But we have to be highly, highly organized. This is really not a sector where anything can just go because you will have shortfalls and you will have a deficit, which is where we are today. Jimmy, go ahead. Okay, fuel subsidy, for instance. You pointed out that if we went to Accra today or if we're in Indajima or one of these other places, we would be paying functionally the market price of petroleum. So the idea that some sort of targeted subsidy as opposed to its removal is worthwhile seems paradoxical, you know. Even if I went back, you know, you did suggest that, let's say, with a project, I'm going to pick one at random that may or may not be relevant, but like with a project such as Manbilla, where the long-term interests of the country in having cheap electricity should have primacy over, essentially at this point, getting as large a financial commitment from whoever takes it over or the concessionaire, so that they are incentivized to produce electricity and make essentially super profits in order to ensure efficiency all along the side of the system, seems to me to be... No, but again, that's not what I said to me. Okay, okay. Okay. That's not accurate at all. So again, it's not my bill, it's another one. But my point on that was that the objective of the government, actually, it's the opposite of what you're saying, cannot be to incentivize a developer to come there and make, you know, maximum profit for any reason, right? That cannot be the objective out of that project. And why not? Uh, Just out of curiosity. Yeah, Yeah, and and that's the point I I was making. Similarly, the objective cannot be to sell the project to the highest bidder, right? Because the goal of government is to bring down the levelized cost of energy. The goal of government has to be, I don't know if it is today, but in any kind of economy that is attempting to develop and to be competitive from a global perspective, from a regional perspective, the goal has to be how do we achieve energy supply at the lowest possible levelized cost from all of the sources of energy that are available to us in our country? And if that is your goal, then you have to think about a significant hydro asset that has the capacity to produce huge amounts of energy into your grid. You have to think about it from that perspective. And so you have to say the kind of developer I want is the one that is going to manage this plant at the highest possible level of efficiency that it can be managed. So I want to incentivize for that. That's the kind of party I want to you know, be in business with. I want a party that can expand the capacity of this plant by adding you know, additional turbines, by putting a solar park nearby so that you can use it for pump storage as well and help to fortify the grid. I want a developer that is going to expand the capacity of this plant and has the industrial expertise, the access to capital, uh, access to global markets, and the commercial incentive to do it. And I want to enter into an agreement with them that incentivizes this type of behavior. And that agreement will not necessarily be the one that sells the plant to the highest bidder or concessions it to the person able to pay the highest concession fee on an annual basis. 
In terms of the profits that the developer will make, they should make as much profit as they can for doing all of this. That's not, quite frankly, and should not be the business of government. The business of government is, are they delivering on what we want to contract them to do, which is to help us manage this thing, again, just to repeat, manage it at the highest possible level of efficiency it can be managed, ensure that it brings down the levelized cost of energy in my country in the long term. And, and the only way it's going to do that is by adding additional capacity and being managed at a low operational cost. So that's what government cares about. Developer can make as much profit as they want within that context. So then I'm going to ask about Azura, just because it's relevant in this particular frame of discussion, right? Which is that it has been an operational success, but seems to be a, a not complete collapse or something, but financial failure, particularly from the perspective of the Nigerian government. It's the newest power plant in the country, but yet seems to be the most reliable and the most stable. Its financial vagaries have the potential to cause a huge debt and credibility and credit rating crisis for Nigeria, in a sense, but it also worked within this. Yeah, so, I mean, Azura is a, is a simple answer, really. You know, a developer has been successfully incentivized to build a plant that is highly competitive and highly efficient, is being dispatched most of the time. And so the duty of government is to make sure that the contract that it has entered into with that developer is honored and that there is absolutely no circumstances in which that contract is not honored. And if the payment terms are unduly onerous, then you sit down and have a negotiation, which happens in, in every country, by the way, where IPPs are in existence. And you say, you know, what can we do to have a deal that makes sense for the government in the long run? But what you certainly don't do is that you don't default on your payment to that developer. You don't default on contracts that you have legally entered into. I mean, no responsible government does that. But contracts can be renegotiated as a sort of mutual conversation. And, you know, other solutions can be brought into that renegotiation that allow the developer achieve its own objectives while the government is not forced to default because it can't afford the payment. So none of this is terribly original. You know, I think everybody working in this field and working on these projects, they know about this. And it's really what needs to be done. These are like really hotly debated and contested issue for, for the elections. And our disputation can we be more than people on Twitter or people who fight at the paper stands? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, we're civilized gentlemen here. We don't need to be overly disputational. But the interesting thing is that we are having the crux of the conversation, like the real conversation. A lot yeah. of the conversation, uh, certainly newspaper stands, social media, it lacks an understanding of the problem in the first yeah, instance. Yeah. Um, and people come at it from very ideological and simplistic standpoints, which do nothing to help with resolving the problem. I think a lot of folks who are contending with the problem in government and in the private sector, they have a better understanding of what is happening. And it just requires leadership to say, okay, let's listen to all of the reasonable perspectives that are on the table and figure out what is the way forward that makes sense in the context of a global market, because we are operating in a global market. And I keep coming back to this. Everything we do has implications on other things. And to me, you may have missed my response on Azura, but I repeat it just to be clear that that is a perfect example of where you have attracted a high-quality developer to build a highly efficient plant, and they have delivered on their side of the bargain. And the role of government has to be to make sure that they get paid for what they were contracted to supply. And yes, government can have challenges, fiscal challenges and liquidity challenges, but what you do is you go and have a renegotiation with the party and you explain to them, these are my challenges, these are the problems I have, what are the solutions that we can put on the table? And this is happening in multiple IPP situations. It happens all the time in, in the IPP business. And every IPP developer is aware of this, actually, when they go into and, a project. And, and, and prices it in, the point that you make. Well, even if you, even if well, you don't well, price well, well, it, you it's ask, a risk of being in the IPP business. But you ask yourself, you know, as a developer, if you are subject to these constant renegotiations, right, and you can basically see them coming. Again, we, you and I, we have a slightly different view upon the validity of, you know, like Tanzania and renegotiations, etc. I mean, there's, there's a certain pragmatism that I completely understand, but I find it hard to 
think about building a broad-based system that envisages such amplitude of risk. And I mean, like, currency risk is currently, you know, the biggest issue that we are all having, right? And I remember, like, Dr. Nevin focused a great deal on that. Currency risk, currency risk, currency risk. But because they have no access to market risk, it seems, um, it always seems to me to be a very precarious foundation to build, upon which to build one's own infrastructure. I mean, you know, I've, I've been involved in IPPs in all of the main markets in Africa where IPPs exist. And I cannot think of one where there has not had to be some kind of renegotiation after the fact. I cannot think of one right now. And anybody who works in power project finance will probably tell you the same thing, right? They always re- they always come at the last yeah. minute. So, so there's nothing special or will betide us because we had to renegotiate a contract. Nothing like that. That's, that's the reality. Now, so the question is, you know, you have to be reasonable in the negotiation. You have to understand that developers have to achieve certain objectives, financial objectives, operational objectives. And then the government also has to figure out a way to ensure that, okay, and maybe I can't pay you this now, but I can pay you this in the future. Uh, Or maybe I can't pay you this, but I can offer you these concessions that also help you achieve your objective. You know, I've seen all kinds of creative situations in all kinds of countries. I mean, we've been part of successful negotiations in Zambia, in Djibouti, in South Africa, in Ghana. You know, so it's happening everywhere, but it's expertise. I can't go into detail on specifics because of client confidentiality. But uh, I've seen very creative ways by which government is able to work with developers to say, you know, we want to work with you. We want to keep working with you. We want to make our payments. But we're strapped at the moment, and here's what we want to put on the table as a solution for you. We've seen it work, lead to even expansion of capacity in certain instances on the part of the developer. So it's not the Bible or the Quran when you have a a power purchase agreement. It's a very, very important document that needs to be honored. But there must be ongoing conversations over the life of the contract. And, And by the way, the contracts are actually designed with this in mind, with the knowledge that this will indeed happen. An important point on this is that the foundation that the Nigerian privatization was built on, which uh, the shareholders of Azura bought into, was that there would be a credible off-taker called Embet, who would, under no circumstances, ever default on their payments. And once you establish that basis, then the role of government is to make sure that that is indeed what happens. And under no circumstances must Embet be allowed to default on anything because that's the basis on which that industry was created. You can find all kinds of solutions around the margins, but the default must not happen. That has to be the reality for any serious government. So I've got two questions, and I'll let me close it up with each comment or question. So the first one is uh, infrastructure finance, generally, because, I mean, all the presidential candidates are promising to build infrastructure. You know, which basically the current or the outgoing administration would also point to as one of its signature achievements. You know, we built this infrastructure and all that. But when you hear conversations about the infrastructure deficit, it's still quite large. Some people reckon that in the case of Nigeria, we still have a deficit of about 150% of our GDP. So from a fiscal point of view, what are the useful heuristics, right, on choosing the right kind of infrastructure, you know, because you don't have the money to build everything. And public investment in public goods are investments into the future. You know, you are investing in creating more economic opportunities that will bring in more taxes in the future. So how do you decide what to build if you can't build everything? Is the simplistic way I, I would from my question. Yes, yeah, so you were asking a question and you boiled down sort of the intermediate answer to the question and then we can go to the secondary point, right? You know, you started by saying, look, you know, there's all so much infrastructure that needs to be built, so much has been built and by the way, I'm a supporter of a lot of what has been done by this government in terms of infrastructure just from a point of view of, you know, assets built. But assets built is not a solution, which you allude to in in your question, right? You always have assets that need to be built and it will always be more than the resources of the government. So how do you prioritize? Because I was going to say the answer is you prioritize. 
So you've, you've given that intermediate answer is that you have to prioritize. Now, how do you prioritize is where, as a country, we have to be very clever and avoid being sucked into political traps because politics is the worst possible way to prioritize. You know, say, for example, we're going to do uh, exactly the same project in all the six geopolitical zones. That's the road to failure already. And that's the kind of political decision that folks make. Oh, I'm going to do this project in my village or in the president's village because I want to curry favor with the president. Or I'm going to do this project in this region because there are more voters there and I want to win votes there. So that's the wrong way to prioritize. And that's the way politicians very often prioritize. The correct way to prioritize in Nigeria today, and speaking very specifically, is you have to say what infrastructure generates exports. The number one priority of Nigeria today is additional export revenue, right? From an economic perspective, Nigeria has many priorities. You have security and you have justice uh, as a problem, justice administration and all of that in the country. But from an economic perspective, right, the solution to, you know, a part of the solution to your currency crisis and everything that we're witnessing on the economic side is that we need to export more. And so what do we need to do from an infrastructure perspective? It is everything that is going to lead to more exports. You've seen the successes that have happened with Dangote's fertilizer plant, which is adding more exports. You've seen the, the new train of NLNG. We need more of that. We need three more trains, four more trains of liquefied natural gas uh, exports. Any number of developers working on other gas monetization projects, all of those, we need to support them. We need upstream gas supply. We need huge investment in upstream gas development, gas processing projects, which is going to lead to gas and gas-related export projects, quite apart from the domestic gas supply needs that we have. So we need huge investments in those. We need investments in renewable energy, right, which is going to help to meet our energy supply deficit in the country and also utilize resources that we have that are currently not being utilized, wind and, and solar. You've seen uh, NSIA did a 10 megawatt solar in Kano. Excellent project. You've seen a lot of good work done by the Rural Electrification Agency, working with international development partners to put a lot of captive solar in multiple locations across the country with uh, universities and, and other such communities. That's what we need, right? Because there's funding for that globally and there's demand for it locally. So that's how you prioritize. And all economic organs of government have to zero in on these areas in the short term. I mean, every project potentially has benefits, but, you know, we can't do every project. So the role of leadership has to be how do you channel all of the resources, all of the awesome power of government in the direction of these priorities, get them out of the way, and then we move on to the next level uh, after that. Yeah, so my final question to you then would be, and this is simply because I can't let you go without asking. You wrote a book on history. So do you see any historical significance for this election? From a historical perspective, is it important and why? Mm, I mean, you know, the nature of historical significance is it usually occurs to everybody after the fact that, wow, that was a historically significant moment in, in the history of a country. I think every election is important. And my view on elections is they're not just an opportunity to elect a leader. They are an opportunity for us to debate what kind of society do we want to live in. Because each of the platforms and the leadership is not just you know presidential leadership. All of them have a slate of legislators that they are putting forward as well. And each election, each of these platforms put forward a vision of society that they believe in. And you see it in both the things that they say explicitly in their words as well as written, but you see it in their lives. You know, what kind of lives have they led up until that point in time? Uh, and anybody who's paying attention, uh, who's sentient and paying attention, will realize that the vision of society that leaders put forward when they come for election is very often, and when I say vision of society, not just what they've written in their manifesto, also what kind of lives have they lived? What do they believe in? And who are they as individuals? So if you take a person's vision of society in that context, you will realize that it has a huge impact on the direction that the country goes. And there are many other things that affect the direction the country goes. For example, global affairs. You know, nobody predicted COVID pandemic. Nobody predicted you know, Russia-Ukraine war. Those things can really throw off whatever plans you may have. 
But fundamentally, those regions of society, this is an opportunity for people to debate them and for people to say, you know what, this is the vision of society that I believe in and that I support. It's not always going to result in that candidate winning the election, but it moves the dial in terms of moving the country in a given direction. And for me, the most important thing about this election is that you are seeing a robust debate around vision of society amongst people. Certainly, you're seeing a demographic trend. You know, younger people having, in my view, a certain idea around how they think the country should be. And maybe that idea is imperfectly formed in one or more of the candidates, but it's there and it's part of the conversation. Uh, and then you see some other candidates going with some of the old ideas around, you know, what, why should I be elected and what are the ideas that are driving my claim to want to take the country forward. And so I think that conversation is extremely important. Ultimately, winner will emerge and then we'll deal with the problems afterwards. But for me, the historical significance of this election is seeing a lot of young people getting involved in the debate and the debate being also about the vision of society and not just the usual things that politicians uh, throw at us. And uh, yeah, I would be very happy with whichever outcome comes out of it. And then we'll, we'll deal with the problems on the other side. Yeah, Timmy, final uh, thoughts. Thank you so much. Um, and the fact that Teddy uh, asked such a cordial and sensible question, um, we're going to also put the link both to the Formation podcast that Paula and Fee did, which I think are fantastic. It's off topic, but if you wonder like about the formation of Nigeria, it's an extremely intelligent, scholarly discussion based upon a lot of primary research. So I would highly recommend that you look in the show notes and click onto the Formation podcast, and then if you can bring yourself, click on to buying the book. So because Toby has ended on such a gracious note, I'm not going to be disputational. But um, you mentioned something, and that. You actually don't feel that this government, and it might not be the most popular opinion, this government has done a bad job on building infrastructure, right? Like many of the projects that they have built, partially built, commissioned, contracted for, are probably worthwhile. Um, are there any particular examples? I know, I mean, you cited the Kano one. And the key thing is, like, it definitely will work. I mean, when it was commissioned, it's not working. I don't think I'm telling anyone anything they don't know, right? But two or three months and it really could be up and running because we're trying to do a little bit of like, oh, we're in the future president, whoever they are, uh, cloakroom and giving them some low-hanging fruit. What other things yeah. have been done that they should focus on? Like that thing is 95% done. Don't go and start another brand new thing. Finish that yeah. thing. Yeah. So again, in the spirit of my original point about frameworks being more important, right? I, I like quite a number of projects that were built by this government, but what I like most are frameworks. And I'll tell you the frameworks that I think should be preserved and supported going into the future. In terms of projects, first of all, I really like the solar project in Kano. I think we need hundreds more projects like that. I really like the Lagos Ibadan road and rail. The rail in particular needs to be significantly optimized for cargo egress from Lagos, from Apapa and Tenkan. I really like Lekki Port, which is a project that I worked on early in its life. That is fantastic transformational project for Lagos and for Nigeria ultimately. I like that Train 7 of LNG got done. That one, we, we were involved in it as a financier. That got done in the last eight years as well. That is fantastic and we need more. I think we need three, four more trains of LNG. So there's quite a few things. I mean, Second Niger Bridge, I like. That is a great project that has been in the works for years. Project that had been talked about since colonial times, since the British built the first bridge over the river. So that is great. And we need many, many more. And there are a number of other bridges that have been built. I think that Fashola did an excellent job with many of these Sukuk roads and many other roads around the country. You see that the Bonny Island is being bridged to the mainland for the first time in the history of Bonnie. I think that's very significant. I mean, it's um, significant. It makes no sense. That Bonnie Buddha Bridge is a boondoggle. Well, the people of Bonnie will not agree with you, but let's leave I that mean, aside. how many, like, you know how it is. Like, okay. So there's, there's a lot of good projects that have been done. As with everything, there are projects that are political in nature that folks may not agree with. You know, it is what it is. What, what are you going to do? You live in an environment where everything is political. 
Yeah, and politics is important. It's what gets people elected. So it has to be paid very, very strong attention to. But to wrap up, what I like is frameworks. And three, I'll talk about two are the outcome of this government. One, I already talked about is the policy from a previous government that I think needs to be supported going forward. Uh, HDMI, which is this uh, road concession program that, again, Fashola led, I think has come up with some very good parties in terms of who have been selected to do it. Parties with the three most important things I always talk about, the industrial expertise, the commercial logic. Most of these projects have very strong commercial logic and incentive to do the right thing. I think that should be supported because it won't close in this government's tenor. I think whoever comes in next needs to support that and not throw it out like you often see people do. I think that the Siemens Power Project, I think that has significant value. And by the way, all these projects I'm working on, so in a way I'm I'm, uh, talking my own book, but I think that the Siemens Project needs to be supported and encouraged into the next administration. I think that the airport concession process, which was also kicked off during this administration, ultimately led to some concessionaires being announced as preferred bidder. Negotiation is ongoing right now. That absolutely needs to be supported into the next administration. And then finally, you know, power privatization, which was done in the past. I see people talk about, you know, simply undoing it. I think that's a terrible idea. And what needs to be done is that it needs to be enhanced and supported. And in some cases, you use the stick, as has been done already with certain utilities. In other places, you use the carrot, a lot more carrot, hopefully, than stick. And we will get good outcomes out of that as well. So these sort of system-wide type initiatives that incentivize capital to flow into projects, these are the ones I like best. I'm trying to push you a little bit, which is that we are trying to talk about dead capital. I Mm -hmm. things the government owns that does it make sense? That's a question I'm trying to answer. Okay. Yeah, which is to say that, you know, simply selling stuff should not be an end in itself. Right, which is fundamentally my disagreement with terming these things dead capital. Again, I'm all for private enterprise. I am as capitalist as they come, but at the end of the day, government's objective has to be developmental, right? Government has to say to itself, what is the developmental goal I'm trying to achieve? And the, the answer will be different depending on the project, right? Whether you simply just sell the shares or you use those shares as leverage, you use it to incentivize some behavior that you want to see in an asset. The answer will really has to be a case-by-case answer. The key thing is, whatever you're doing, make sure it's market-driven and it's sustainable going into the future. So I don't have a sort of ideological view that, you know, we have all these shares, you know, we own NNPC, why don't we just sell it and make money out of that? I have another idea around that. You know, So it's not that simple, is really my, my response. Give us a, a brief hint of your idea around NNPC. The IJVs. Uh, you know, like, I would rather you know, not. But um, Like <laughs> listing some of the shares in the assets? Like just... There's all kinds of solutions, but like, you know, some of this I'm working on, so I can't speak openly. Yeah, that's why I knew. I knew because... It's just confidential. That's, that's all. So no, I'm saying that's it. my point. I don't want to know about your particular <laughs> project. But IJVs, listing... Only because I say uh, Dr. Andrew Nevin in our last episode, he did have some. He was like, well... You know, the PIA was supposed to be this magic bullet, right? The AFC conference, I remember, Echo Tel, 2015, 2015. And it's just like, oh, let's just pass PIB at the time. Just pass PIB, just pass PIB, everything will be fine. Yeah, but which version of the PIB, right? PIB was a vessel onto which many different people projected many different aspirations based on whatever version they were looking at, whatever they'd managed to lobby to have into that version. Ultimately, what got passed is what got passed, and that is what is driving behavior in the industry uh, at the moment. But, you know, this is a whole other podcast talking about... Yeah, I know, I know, but I'm going to try and bring you down again. So do you think that the PIA that ultimately got passed was essentially a damn squid? I mean, I'd rather not comment on that one. The gas supply to Train 7, the prospective gas supply for exports, the internal gas supply, and the problem that we're having... it seems to have been like a big warm. And so I don't understand. If they spent any political capital doing it, it seems like it was a complete waste of time. I mean, you, you would say that. But as you say, politics, politics is important. could never possibly confirm or deny. Yeah, I mean, my, my ideas, you know, I think you, you know what they are from what we've been saying on this podcast. Yeah. And that's really where the focus ought to be and not anywhere else, in my view. 
So I think this is the time at which I thank you for your time. No, thank you guys very much. In case anyone was wondering, didn't get into AKK or really into the prospect of building train lines to somewhere in Niger. But Mr. Tagwile has been extraordinarily kind and generous. Thank you very much, Wala. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. On the next episode of Ballot and Beyond, we'll be talking to Fee Fawaimi, a public policy commentator, on how it went wrong for the outgoing government and the qualities that Nigerians should look for in their next president. Thank you so much, listeners, for downloading and listening and your feedback. And until next time, goodbye.